Well, today we've come to the end. Not just to our study of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but in all likelihood, the end of the Old Testament. What happens at the end of Nehemiah is probably some of the last words that are written to God's people in the Old Testament somewhere in the late 430 or early 430s BC to late 420s BC. And it's important for us to recognize where we're sitting in redemptive history at the onset because as we approach the end of these books and consequently the end of the Old Testament, we see our need for Christ so explicitly, so clearly. We see at the end of the Old Testament the need for the new. strengthened and our longing and hope for someone, something to come and do what we could not do in and of ourselves. And remember, that's the whole point of the Old Testament. The Old Testament prepares the way for the work of Christ. It prepares us as a people to receive what God is going to do in Jesus the greater work of redemption that God could only accomplish in Christ. The Old Testament has been building our anticipation. We are sitting on the edge of our spiritual seats, waiting to see what God would do to bring his promise to completion. I hope in our study last fall, as we saw the Jesus is Better series, and even in Ezra and Nehemiah here, I hope that you're seeing how God sets the stage in the Old Testament for the work of Christ. In the Old Testament, we've learned the language of redemption. We've seen the expectation associated with God's people as, as God calls them to be holy, as he is holy. We have known that they have been called to be set apart, and they've tried over and over again to commit themselves to this set-apartness. But the more resolve they have, the more they commit themselves to walking in the law of God, the more they fail. They're unable in their own strength to keep this commitment. And as we read the Old Testament, it forces us to ask the question, if the curse in Genesis 3 will ever truly be lifted, or would mankind be put under greater condemnation as the curse is continually reinforced by our continued failure? So while the end of the story in Ezra and Nehemiah is a sad one, we'll see that today, I want you to know from the beginning of our time today that it's simply an intermission. It's not the whole story. The final act is not played. And if you look closely in the last chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13, you will see the, sound, the foundation being set for the glorious end to God's story that will come in Jesus. And that's our goal for today. As we walk through Nehemiah 11 to 13, specifically focusing on Nehemiah 13 this morning, I want us to see how in this passage, in a way representative of the entire Old Testament, how it sets the stage for the coming work of Christ, how it prepares us to see that Jesus is better. So let me offer some context as we work our way to Nehemiah 
13. As we saw in chapters 9 and 10 last week, the people have repented of their disobedience and they have once again committed themselves to obedience. They want to know the word of God. They want to walk in it, learning it and obeying it for the glory of God. And the question that comes to our mind as we've read the Old Testament is, will this time be different? Well, will this people, in light of all that God has done for them and miraculously delivering them from bondage, having sent them into judgment to learn the lesson and having restored them now completely into the land of promise, a new city, a new temple, a new people fashioned by the word of God, will this time be different? In chapter 11, things are going well. Some of the people begin to settle in Jerusalem, the leaders and those who are, are chosen through the casting of lots begin to build homes inside the city. And Nehemiah organizes the town. And he organizes the religious practice of the people to be sure that they are honoring the Lord in their worship. In chapter 12, we see the, the finished wall dedicated. And the people begin to celebrate God for his faithfulness. Listen to these words in chapter 12, verses 44 to 47. On that day, Men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the firstfruits, the tithes, to gather them in the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his, and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God and all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers and they set apart that which was for the Levites and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. The work that God has asked them to do, he has brought to completion and the people are responding to God's redemptive work. They're responding to his faithfulness and exhibiting faithfulness in and of themselves, giving as they have promised and worshiping God as they have promised. It seems like a happy ending, right? It seems like maybe this time will be different, but then we turn the page. And chapter 12 moves quickly to chapter 13. Something happens in chapter 13. The celebration does not last. In spite of all the work of restoration that God has done in his people through Ezra and Nehemiah, the people have not really changed. Not in their hearts. This committed people suddenly don't look very committed at all. And this lack of commitment to the things of God is seen in a number of places, not just one. The sin is pervasive. It, it comes back with full force. Let's just consider a moment in chapter 13, all the areas where disobedience is evidenced among the people of God, where, where sin rears its ugly head. There are four specific areas that our text in chapter 13 brings to our mind to show the disobedience of God's people. And in verses 1 to 9 of chapter 13, we see that the, the people of God have failed to keep the temple of God pure. A priest, his name is Eliashib, 
actually invites, according to verses 1 to 9, a Moabite to live in the temple courts. The chapter begins with a reading from Deuteronomy chapter 23, in which God says, don't have any association with the Moabite people. Don't bring them in to your courts because of what they did to the prophet or the false prophet Balaam. That, number, uh, that, that story is in Numbers 22 to 25. Because those people, the Moabite people, tried to deceive the people of God and bring a curse upon them, God was very particular and his command to not bring them in amongst the people. But this priest, Tobiah, has not only brought a Moabite amongst the people, he's brought it, him into the very temple courts of God. This brand new temple, just dedicated to the Lord, this priest leads the people of God to disgrace. Secondly, they have not continued to faithfully give this people we see that in verses 10 to 14. This Moabite, a relative of Elijah, is able to live in a room that was initially set aside to collect all of the offerings from the people, but the people are not offering as they promised. The priest, Levite, singers are neglected, and so now they've run back into the field because the people have not given enough to support the work of the temple. Thirdly, verses 15 to 22, the people of God have not honored the Sabbath. They're trading, they're, they're making wine. They are not resting and reflecting on the, the greatness of God. They're choosing to work and ignore the work of God, which is what the Sabbath was established to do. They're not expressing their continued dependence upon him, but having been restored, they're now ignoring and they have not kept themselves set apart, we see in verses 23 to 27. They've married foreign women who worship foreign gods. And look at verse 23, a very condemning statement. And those days I saw the Jews had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, Moab, verse 24, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So these families who were entrusted with the responsibility of continuing the faith and teaching their families to fear the, the one true God of Israel are doing nothing of the sort. In fact, they're teaching their children to honor false gods. Almost every single thing the people of God committed themselves to in chapter 10, they have now forsaken and the question is why? Why? How did the people get here? Why were they not able to commit themselves? And again, this, poor, this question today is not just important for our understanding of this text, but also our own sanctification. As we consider the, the larger lessons, not just of Ezra and Nehemiah, but the whole Old Testament and how it is preparing us for the work of Christ. So, Let's consider, why did these people fall again? Three reasons I want to offer us as we consider the lessons of Ezra and Nehemiah, but also the whole of the Old Testament. Number one, they were without, without a godly leader. Number two, they ignored the word of God. And number three, 
they did not have the Spirit of God within them. Three reasons the people of God failed. Number one, they were without a godly leader. Number two, they ignored the word of God. And number three, they did not have the spirit of God within them. Let's consider each of these reasons separately for a moment. Reason number one, they were without a godly leader. And we see that in chapter 13, verse six. All this is happening at the beginning of the chapter. All this has taken place And while it was taking place, verse 6, Nehemiah tells us that he was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, he returned to go do his work as a cupbearer. So it was in the, the absence of Nehemiah that the people of God began to stray. In Nehemiah 11 and 12, we see Nehemiah set the people of God up for success. Nehemiah put things in order. He put things in God's order, exactly as God outlined. And that's what godly leaders are called to do. He sees what God's expectation is for his people. He follows the directions as set forth by God, and he leaves the people of God in good shape. Unfortunately, though, the people who are put into positions of leadership to continue what Nehemiah began, we're not as committed as Nehemiah was. Eliashib, we've already met, the priest, puts his relationship with Tobiah, the Moabite, above his relationship with God. Instead of protecting the house of God and its purity, he defiles it. And the disorder that begins among the leaders of God's people then moves throughout the entire people. Tobiah was able to live in a room that was empty because the people of God were not giving, we see in verse five. Not like they were supposed to. And so the room was repurposed and it opened the door for a foreigner who was specifically outlawed from coming into the people of God to live in the courts of the temple. The Levites were not guarding the gates on the Sabbath. They did not rebuke those who welcomed foreign gods. The leaders failed to protect God's people as they were called to. As we've seen over and over again, throughout the scripture, godly leaders are a gift to God's people. Godly leaders help us to be committed to the things of God and to identify when we are walking away from what God has called us to. But when godly leaders are put in places of influence, when ungodly leaders are put in places of influence, the results can be disastrous. Just like we see here in Nehemiah 13. What's ironic is the people probably liked the ungodly leaders, right? Because they got to do whatever they wanted to. They didn't have to give up all of their money. They didn't have to, to be so disciplined and regimented in, in their commitment to the law. They got what they wanted, but it would ultimately lead to their ruin, just as it had done before. Nehemiah, though, was not moved by the fear of man, but rather he was moved by the fear of God. Everything he did, he did for the glory of God. 
Everything he did, he did with an eye toward God and called his people to refocus their gaze in a similar way. Throughout the text, as Nehemiah begins to institute reforms yet again, every time he confronts something, he asks God to notice. Verse 14, remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and his service. As he calls the people back to protecting the temple again. Verse 22, I commanded the Levites they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 31, I provided for the food offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Every time he comes and he confronts sin, he's asking God to not bring upon the people the curse that they deserved. Because he remembered the promises of God. He remembered the commitment that these people made. And he wanted to hold them accountable to it. At the same time, asking for the Lord's grace and mercy to give them a chance to repent. Without a godly leader, the people wondered. That's the first reason. Second reason, they failed. They ignored the word of God. And in some reasons, in some ways, this reason is intimately tied to the first reason because a godly leader is tied to the word of God. The leaders who were left in place when Nehemiah left, did not bring the people back to the word of God. They didn't hold the word of God high and say, hey guys, this is the standard. This is what we've committed ourselves to. And remember, if we don't do what God's asked us to do, we've welcomed a curse. We've welcomed judgment yet again, just when we have been enjoying, begun enjoying the fruits of God's blessing yet again. And because they did not hold the word of God high, as we saw happening in Nehemiah 8 and Nehemiah 9, the people ventured back into disobedience. Listen, this chapter begins the way it begins in a very intentional way. Verse 1, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter into the assembly, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water. But they hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those from foreign descent. This chapter is very intentional to begin with that reading of Scripture because of what Eliashib does in the next verses. It begins with this reading from Deuteronomy 23 to, uh, verses 3 to 5. Because it wants to, to show us how disobedient the priests were to the word of God. And how ignoring the word of God led to the destruction, led to the beginning of the destruction that we see taking place amongst God's people in Nehemiah 13. This people were rebuilt by the word of God. And their destruction comes about when they ignore the word of God. Verse four, Eliashib the priest 
appointed over the chambers of the house of our God related to Tobiah, who was a Moabite, prepared this large chamber for him to come and live in. And that neglect for the word of God was a key factor in the people of God turning away from God. Listen, God has made very clear his expectations for his people in the law. He's established the way that the people can live under his blessing. And the people had seen this firsthand. They know when we walk in accordance with the law, when we walk in accordance with God's standard, he will pour out his blessing upon us. But when we turn aside from it, he will bring judgment upon us because he will not let his name be associated with the people who do not honor it and do not glorify it. But having gotten all that they wanted, having been restored, they begin to forsake God and live outside the parameters. And we all know that God would not let that last for long. And as Nehemiah comes back, he says to the people, have you forgotten the word of God? Have you forgotten what God said? Verse 18, chapter 13, did not your fathers act in this way? Have you not been reading your Bible? Have you not been reading all that they did that was wrong? And did not our God bring all that disaster upon us in this city? And now you're bringing more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath? Verses 25 to 27. I confronted them and cursed them and beat them and pulled out their hair. Listen, some of you get really upset when we confront sin at our church, but we have never beaten you. We've never pulled out your hair. But according to the scripture, we have that right. Just kidding. Maybe. Here's what he says. I take them out. I take them, I made them take an oath saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or their daughters uh, for your sons to yourselves. Did not King Solomon sin on account of such women? Did you forget what was written in the word of God about King Solomon not listening to the word of God, marrying foreign women who worshiped foreign gods and being led astray? The word of God was written for your good. Yes, to know how you were to walk and to offer you a warning about what would happen when you disobeyed. And because you've not paid attention, you've wandered far off the path and you are in danger once again of coming under God's judgment. They did not remember what God had done for them and they did not remember what God had done to them because they weren't taking advantage of the gift of the word of God. And so they walked away. But the final reason, and perhaps the most important reason, that the people of God disobeyed God was that they did not have the spirit of God within them. This is something we've been learning about as, across the Old Testament. The people tried to commit themselves. I have no reason to believe that in chapter 10, when this people come before the Lord and they commit themselves before the Lord, 
When they say to him, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of this land or take their daughters for our sons. When they say to him, we will not bring goods or any grain in on the Sabbath, chapter 10, verse 31. I have every reason to believe that they had pure intentions there. That in verse 32, they said that we will, we will commit to give what we're supposed to give to support the temple and the ministry of the temple. I believe that in that moment, they were very sincere. But despite their sincerity, they were broken. And they could not bear all that God had asked of them. It was too burdensome. It was too heavy for them to carry on their own. And what you see throughout the Old Testament is the harder they tried, the harder they tried to be good, the harder they tried to please the Lord in their own strength, the further they failed. Until the burden was so heavy, they just cast it off completely thinking they would never be able to do enough. They needed God to do a new work in them. They needed God to do something in them that he promised he would do through the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 20, uh, 36, verses 24 to 27, when God tells his people, I'm gonna do something new in you. I'm gonna give you a new heart. I'm gonna put a new spirit within you to be able to be the kind of people that I've longed to have for myself. See, chapter 13 should not be surprising to us as we read the Old Testament. It should burden us. It should grieve us. But it should not be surprising. This is what sinful man does. And this will always be the end for man when we try to please him in our own strength, when we try to be good enough on our own, it will always lead to condemnation. It will always lead to tragedy. The law reveals our sin. It reveals our need, but it cannot save. Nehemiah would once again correct these things. But again, it would not last. Even those corrections would be discarded. What a depressing ending, right? That's the end of the Old Testament. What we just read there in Nehemiah 13. What a depressing ending. But praise be to God, that's not where the whole story ends. God has not finished his redemptive work, and he sends a greater Nehemiah to finish what Nehemiah could not, to fulfill what God promised in Ezekiel 36, and his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus will succeed where Nehemiah could not. And let me just offer three ways that Jesus is better than Nehemiah and how through the story of Nehemiah, we are prepared for the work of Christ. Jesus is better than Nehemiah in that in Christ, we find a more godly leader, a leader who will fix what ails the people of God truly, not just restrain it. You see, Jesus doesn't just confront sin. Jesus pays for our sin. 
Isn't that incredible? That he didn't just point out our sinfulness, but he makes the way possible for us to be freed from our sin. He doesn't just put things in order. He establishes the way that order can come about. I'm so taken by what Nehemiah says at the end of every time he confronts a particular sin in this passage. We, we read them earlier where he says to God after confronting the sin, Father, remember my faithfulness. Don't, don't pour out your wrath upon the people because I want you to remember my faithfulness. But do you know, there was a limit even to Nehemiah's faithfulness. And even as God remembered Nehemiah, it would not be enough, not for eternity, to cover the unfaithfulness and the sinfulness of the people. But praise be to God in Jesus Christ, we have a better Nehemiah. Because when Jesus Christ says, remember me, Father, and remembering the sacrifice and the work of Christ, it is enough to cover all the unfaithfulness of us as a people. It's a testimony to the work of Christ, friends, what Jesus did upon the cross, that in the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body, we can sit underneath that sacrifice. And even in moments where we forget and we wander and we come to a place of unfaithfulness, we can sit under the provision of Christ. And God looks at his son, he looks through the blood of Christ, and he will remember our sin no more. Praise be to God that Jesus is a better leader who has led us not just to have our sin confronted, but to have our sin provided for and to establish the order by which we as the people can truly live to honor God. Secondly, in Jesus, we are more captivated by God's word. Through Christ, the living logos, the living word of God, we are more captivated by his word so that we will not neglect it, so that we will not forget it. In Jesus, we have a more compelling vision of God's redemptive work on our behalf. A vision that's hard to ignore, friends. In Jesus, these are, these are not just words on a page, the word of God, but the personification of the word of God, incarnate. They are in a person who allows us to see God as we have never seen him before, full of grace and truth. And when we see the word of God made alive in Christ, it arrests our hearts as never before. Isn't it true that when you follow the Old Testament and you see its fulfillment in Christ, it makes the Old Testament come alive in greater ways? Why? Because everything that God has been preparing you for is fully realized in the person and work of Christ. And so everything you've been reading in the Old Testament makes much more sense. And more than that, it captures your heart because you're not just thinking about words on a page. You're thinking about a person, right? I think about in my marriage with Jordan. It's the only marriage that I have. And... Uh, when, when we try to honor each other, you know, in the normal times of birthdays, anniversaries, all that kind of stuff, and we'll get each other cards, right? And if you think about a card, typically you get one that has some sort of stock saying in it, right? Like, uh, happy Mother's Day, you're the best mom anyone could hope for. It's kind of generic, but it, 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 it works, okay? I mean, it, it's meaningful, 
But do you know what's more meaningful for Jordan than the words that the, the, the card company wrote? The words that I write beside them, right? Because, yeah, that's right. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you heard that at home, but there were several amens in the room supporting that truth. So husbands, take notice. So uh, the words that I write are more important. Why? Because they're connected to a person that she knows who wrote them just for her. And that's a little bit different. But you know what's even more important on those days? Not just the words that I wrote next to the words that were wrote, written by someone else. The most important things are the words that I say directly to her in person. Each time, the meaning becomes more impactful upon her life because they're not just words on a page. They're not just words that are said in an empty way. They are attached to a person whom she knows loves her. And in Jesus, we have the word of God in a person who evidences God's love for us, who captures and arrests our hearts, leads us to repentance and belief. So it's hard to cast off and forget what God has done for us because we are so captivated by who Christ is. That's something Nehemiah could never do. As much as he and Ezra put the word of God in front of the people of God, they could never arrest our hearts in the same way the incarnate word of God could. And we praise the Lord for Jesus coming and showing us personally how much God has loved us. And finally, in Jesus, we receive the spirit of God. God reveals himself to us in Christ. He leads us to repentance and belief, and through him we are cleansed. Listen, every one of us has invited into our lives a Moabite who didn't belong. Even though God said, don't let them come in. You think it's a blessing, but it will lead to a curse. You should not make room in your heart for those things, even though, God has said that we have all opened up rooms that were meant to be filled with something else and let something that did not honor God come in. And here's what Christ has done. Through his obedience, perfect obedience to the law, through his taking of the wrath of God upon the cross, he has made a way for us to be cleansed. To have that thing that doesn't belong removed so that the Spirit of God can come and rest in us, not just amongst us, in us, enabling us to be the kind of people that we could not be before. Yes, the law was too heavy to bear on our own, but this leader did not leave us or forsake us. He did not abandon us to failure but he made a way for us to be empowered by the Spirit of God to do what we could not do otherwise. Again, not just confronting our sin and our disobedience, but making provision for our obedience, giving us the helper to help us be the people that God has called us to be. Listen, 
I hope you see that without Jesus, friends, our lives would end in the same way that Nehemiah ended. Your life would be a tragedy and it would end in judgment. But because of Christ, your life could have a very different ending. We could have an ending not like Nehemiah 13, but like Revelation 22. And I hope that you're longing for this kind of ending because it is a much better ending. Friends, don't you long to be a part of this ending? The angel showed me the river of the water of life, verses 1 to 5 of 22. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's a much better ending, right? That's the kind of ending that I want. I, I want to be with God in that place when the suffering that we're experiencing even now will be wiped away, when there will not be a threat of disease, when night will be no more and death, sin, our enemies will be fully defeated. That will be a truly happy ending. That's available to us because of Christ. So here's the question this morning, friends. How do you think your story is going to end? If you were to die today because of COVID or a car crash, when you stand before a holy and righteous God, will you stand before him under the work of Christ? Or will you stand before him in your own work? If it's up to you, you will fail. But if you come under the work of Christ, a much different ending awaits. Will you be in him? Will you be found in him when he returns? Or will you be found outside of him? There's ever been a more important question that can be asked than that question. It's the question the whole Old Testament asks and that the New Testament answers. If you want that kind of ending, a Revelation 22 ending, you have to be in Christ. Wherever you are, would you bow your heads? Spend some time before the Lord asking him to help you know how to respond today. And if you're saying, Jared, I just don't know how my, I don't know what my ending is. I don't know what would happen if I stood before the Lord today. I want to tell you that 
the work of Christ is available for you today and that the Holy Spirit has unveiled to you your need for Christ and the complete sufficiency of the work of Christ to save you from your sin, the Bible says all you have to do is repent and believe. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Cry out to God and say, God, no matter how much I want to try to please you in my own strength, I can never be obedient enough. I will always fall short. But I recognize that Christ was obedient for me. I'm going to give my life to him. I'm going to surrender my life to him so that he covers what I could not cover. For the rest of us who are in Christ, are we living in this kind of confidence? Are we living with this kind of certainty that despite what may seem like unhappy endings, small defeats along the way, that we have a leader in Christ who will return but who has also made provision for us to be faithful in the meantime. Will he find us faithful when he returns? And will we celebrate his return the way that we're called to? Father, would you help us know how to respond to your word today? God, thank you that in Christ, our story can be caught up in yours. And we can be saved from our sin and given a new future. A future of hope, free from condemnation because of the work of Christ. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. You stand and sing, respond as the Lord leads.